you want to open your Bibles to John 19, verses 12 through 16. Let me go ahead and read that for us. John 19, verses 12 through 16. We're at the judgment of Christ. We're taking a number of weeks to go through John 19 and uh, John 18 and 19. And uh, we're a small part here. Jesus has already been tried and he has been scourged and beaten and he has been sort of sent back and forth between various uh, ruling authorities and he's pretty much come to the end of the trial part right now. And so, John 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open your word to us that by your Spirit you would implant it in our hearts and minds, that we might understand and apply it and be changed by it. Father, we thank you that your Word is powerful and effective. We ask it to be that way in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you've seen the 2002 Oscar-winning movie, The Pianist. It's about a Jewish pianist whose name is Vladislaw Spielman. He's brilliantly played in an Oscar-winning performance by Adrian Brody. And it's about this man as he is caught up in the overthrow of Warsaw, Poland, overrun as it was by Nazi Germany during World War II. Vladislaw Spielman in this movie witnesses getting all tangled up here, witnesses his mother, his father, his brother, his sister, and 300,000 others being taken in trains to death camps and to gas chambers. And he escapes. And there's a point in the movie where he is hiding in a bombed-out, disheveled home in the attic, and he's trying to open a can of fruit. And just as he's trying, he's at the point of near starvation, and just as he's trying to open this can of fruit, the camera suddenly focuses on the presence of another, a Nazi German officer. And they're just standing there, the two of them, the one crouching in fear, trying to open this can of fruit so he can eat. And then the German officer with the boots and the hat and the 
black. And the officer asks him who he is. And then he asks him if he's a Jew. And he says, yes. And he asks him what, asks him what he does. And he says, I am. And then he corrects himself and says, I was a pianist. And the German just looks at him and says, play me something. And Vladislav Spielman sits down at this dusty piano and he begins to play Chopin's ballad number one in G minor. And it's the most moving, sublime seven minutes in which in the midst of the horror and the ugliness and the inhumanity of that moment, there shines something of exquisite beauty. Even if you don't know who Chopin is, I dare you to watch that scene and it not move you. In our passage today, there is another Jew. And he too is standing in the midst of the horror and the ugliness and of man's inhumanity. He's standing in the midst of sheer, unadulterated godlessness and hatred. And in this chapter, in this passage, there shines something of exquisite beauty. Jesus is on trial. He's on trial before the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And John describes the scene for us. And it's a scene that occurs essentially in two acts with uh, this kind of dark, somber, uh, grisly intermission. Two different acts. They follow the same scenes, but in reverse order. If we go all the way back to chapter 18, verses 28 through 32, Jesus is handed over to Pilate for execution. And then in verses 33 to 38, he's cross-examined by Pilate. And then in the verses that end chapter 18, he's defended by Pilate. And then in the very beginning of chapter 19, there's this intermission in the trial where they take Jesus out and they beat him and spit upon him and he's mocked by the soldiers. And that's when he gets the crown of thorns and the purple robe and he's scourged. And so now when he's brought back in for the second act, he's essentially a bloody mess. And now the same scenes, reverse order, play out here in this second act. Jesus is first defended by Pilate and then cross-examined by Pilate and then handed over, our passage today, handed over by Pilate for crucifixion. Two great scenes about this sinister, painful, mocking, killing, and suffering of Jesus. And God intends for us to catch several strains of uh, thought, several strands of teaching. On the stage are Jesus and Pilate. In the background are the Roman soldiers and Caiaphas, the high priest, with the other priests. And if you've ever read an introduction to a Greek play, you may have seen the Latin phrase, uh, dramatis personae. It means people of the drama. Today we would list it, it would be called the cast of characters. 
And it'll be listed the choruses and the characters and the various groups of characters. And the dramatis personae in John 19 would make a Greek uh, playwright pale with envy because we have this dramatic, dramatic scene. There's the religious leaders. They're so blinded by their hatred for Jesus, they don't see the deathly inconsistency of their own lives. They're so scrupulous about the smallest religious details, they won't defile themselves by entering Pilate's residence. And yet they're unified in intent on trapping Pilate into performing essentially judicial murder. That when questioned by him, they answer with the unison of a Greek, cor- uh, Greek uh, chorus. Matthew 27. And he, Pilate, said, Why, what evil has he done? Speaking of Jesus. But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. These religious men are so perverted, they prefer the release of a notorious murderer, Barabbas, to the sinless Christ. And they lower themselves to crass political blackmail in order to gain their end. (coughs) Also on this list is Pontius Pilate himself. We all know him. He's in our creed. Representative of Imperial Rome. The greatest power on earth. He's a man to whom success means everything. He was a native of Seville in Italy. Came to his position through this fortuitous chain of events. He joined the legions of Germanicus. Participating in all the wars and the Rhine. And then he journeys to Rome. Where he met and married Claudia Procula, the youngest daughter of Julia, the daughter of the Emperor Augustus. So he marries the Emperor's granddaughter. Well, that Emperor dies. There's a new Emperor. The Emperor now is Tiberius. And the last in this cast of characters is Christ, the matchless Savior. Descriptions can't do him justice. He is the source of and substance of the gospel. And again, life is often not as it appears on the surface. If you just looked at this cast, at this drama, you would think Christ has been caught up on the tides of history and just swept away. But Christ has not been caught up. He has not been swept unwillingly to his end. As the tides of life swirl around Christ, he kept his course. On the other hand, it would look like there's a man in charge, Pilate. But the reality is Pilate is a man of the earth, a man who set his mind on things below, and he's tossed about helplessly on the currents of history. He lives according to the course of this world, and he's subject to it. So let's take a look at what happens here in this drama. Let's look at our passage this morning. And we start with verse 12. We start by being reminded of Pilate's dilemma. Pilate's dilemma. Two weeks ago, I explained at some length the dilemma that Pilate found himself in. 
It's important for understanding the context of the passage, so I'm going to go over it again briefly. Pilate's in a dilemma because he has had bad relationships with the Jews. When he first began in Palestine as the governor, he kind of had screwed up with them over and over again. Rome had finally had to send down word for him to uh, shape up or they're going to pull him out. He had irritated the people far too much. And this is an error of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Romans would move into an area and subject the people, but this law allowed them kind of a home rule and sort of uh, have this uh, peace, absence of violence, not true peace. But the Romans wanted to keep their, their realm somewhat peaceful, and they were pretty good at it. And so here you have Pilate, who is having a tough time keeping peace with the Jewish people. They continue to revolt. They continue to riot. And not only does Rome know he's having a tough time, but he has capitulated to them on several occasions. And Rome knows the Jews have Pilate under their thumbs. He's sort of viewed as a puppet who could be moved wherever the Jews wanted to move him. And they held this over his head, this constant unspoken threat. If you don't do what we want, we'll revolt. And guess who will hear about it? Caesar, and you'll get the axe, both figuratively and literally. And so he's essentially being blackmailed by the Jews into doing what they want, and in this case, into executing Jesus. They're saying, Pilate, if you don't do what we want, you're going to have trouble. And we'll see that this is the very thing that finally causes Pilate to make the decision to let Jesus be crucified. It is this issue, it is this dilemma that he is trapped between the Jews and the Romans. They know how to get to Pilate. They keep at it until he gives in. Caiaphas and his friends knew Pilate was known as a friend of Caesar. And while it says in our text that you would not be a friend of Caesar, that's an actual title that Caesar gave you. Except in the last three years before this happened, several friends of Caesar's uh, found themselves not so friendly with Caesar, and he killed them all, including Pilate's mentor. So this is sort of a tough time. His mentor, who sort of got him in with Caesar, is dead, and he still has the title. But this is what the Jews are threatening him with. Caesar at this point is sort of a paranoid uh, recluse. He's living on the Isle of Capri. He's left Rome because he doesn't feel safe in Rome. And he responds savagely to any hint of unfaithfulness to him. So if this charge is brought against Pilate, he's in serious trouble. And as a result, Pilate had made efforts to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out. And they bring us to our verse uh, 12, where it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. This is a threat. This isn't just a statement. This is a threat that even though you have that title, it's not true, and we're going to tell him. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, and Pilate is trapped. He doesn't want to sentence an innocent man but he cannot be seen as opposing Caesar. And there's only a few moments left in this drama 
But I think it's one of those brief periods of time that seem to last forever. So the stage has been set for Pilate's deliberations. Verses 13 and 14, Pilate's deliberation. It's time for sentencing. And these verses, this is the official act of sentencing. It's shocking to realize that Pilate will someday stand before the throne where Jesus will be seated to sentence him. But now it is Pilate sitting down in the judgment seat. And Pilate's pursuit, pursuit of success has left him with no choices. And even though Christ is innocent, even though Christ had hinted at his divinity, he had received, uh, Matthew tells us, a warning from his wife Claudia. Matthew 27 says, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And even though he's frantic to see Christ released, he felt he could do nothing else. This man had set his mind on wealth, pleasure, status, power, and he's tossed about on the current of history. It's no different from, for us. If our mind is set on those same things, wealth, pleasure, status, power, if our mind is set on earthly things, Philippians uh, 3, we're in bondage as slaves to sin, Romans 6. The reality is we're no freer than Pilate, if that's true about us. And the drama concludes here out on the stone pavement, in the sunlight. And Pilate yields to the crowd's demands, verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Now, if you can remember back a little bit in John, it's actually many chapters, but only a week in time. When Jesus had come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's just days before. And that's the day when the shepherds would bring their Passover lambs into the city. And it'd be an extraordinary sight. There'd be thousands of lambs in every street and nook and cranny of Jerusalem. You could hardly walk around for all these lambs. And yet walking in their midst is the Passover lamb himself who has come to lay down his life in order that the curse due to our sin would be removed. Don't miss the irony. Don't miss the timing because it shows us that Christ is still in control. It says here, you don't know why it's here, it says it was about the sixth hour. It's a very key sentence. This final rejection takes place at the sixth hour on Passover Eve, the very hour that the priests begin to slaughter the Passover lambs in the temple. The Lamb of God times his sacrifice to coincide with the Passover lambs. And as we know from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, he writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And furthermore, we even see from Pilate's words that Christ is still in control. This time, instead of saying, Behold the man, he cries, Behold your king. Christ is never more kingly at this moment. Although despite 
to the eyes of the world. He's beaten. He has thorns. He's bleeding. He has this old faded uh, purple robe. He can barely stand up. Behold your king. The long-awaited king of the Jews stood before them, and they didn't recognize him. But we know this is coming after all. The Apostle John told us this right at the beginning of his book, John 1.11. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And to be honest with you, I don't know when Pilate makes this statement, Behold your king. I don't know if that's a cynical statement or a desperate statement by Pontius Pilate. I mean, I think this time Pilate is sweating. He's losing it. He's wanting out of this problem. On one hand, he's remembering that Jesus may be the Son of God. He's remembering the warning that his wife has given him uh, from her dream. He knows that Jesus is innocent. On the other hand, he knows the hatred of the Jews. He's worried about the pressure from Rome. He's trapped with nowhere to go. And so he goes out and says, Behold your king. And even though the behold is capitalized and the king is capitalized, I think the emphasis here is on the word your. Behold your king. Pilate is throwing his confusion back on the chief priests. I think partly to rub their nose in uh, what they have to know, what he has to know is wrong, and partly to let them know he's not quite the puppet they think he is. There's no way he's taken all the blame for this one by himself. He is not going to sentence Jesus by himself. He is going to share the blame. And he wants the Jews to do the sentencing by their own voices. In fact, that is what we see in verse 15 with Pilate's demand. Pilate's demand. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, this is key, the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That last statement is remarkable. One would think they would have uh, choked on it as they said it. So great was their hatred of Jesus that they would rather deny their own convictions than see him escape crucifixion. To get to the point where the chief priests of Israel, who hated the Romans, who hated Caesar, would stoop to such utter hypocrisy to say, we have no king but Caesar. It's beyond comprehension. All of their history was supposed to reveal that their true king was none other than God himself. You go all the way back to the book of Judges. They wanted to make Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon and his mighty men? They wanted to make him king after a great victory in battle. Judges 8, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Then again in 1 Samuel, again, they ask for a king. We want to be like the other nations. And Samuel pleads with them, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't want this. It'll bring tremendous hardship to you. And they keep asking, and they get it. And in time, the kingship destroys the nation of Israel, leads them into gross idolatry, and brings upon them the judgment of God himself. 
But look at what God says when Samuel goes before uh, God. He brings this situation to God. God says, 1 Samuel 8, says, Then all the, leader, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And yet now, fast forward from Samuel through the, all the kings, and most of them were bad. There's like five good kings, and they weren't even good for their whole life. And Israel is just shattered. They get sent into exile, a Babylonian captivity. They're brought back. They have hundreds of years of silence. And now we're at the time of Christ. And they're confronted in the flesh with God himself as king. And they commit the very crimes they accuse Jesus of. Blasphemy, denying their allegiance to the sole kingship of God, and treason, turning away from their people, their nation, and their God to commit themselves to Caesar the one to whom everyone agreed you could not give your allegiance to. It's exactly what they do. And it's a stunning admission of unbelief for these words to come out of the mouth of the chief priests of Israel. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians facing great persecution. And though these words were written to encourage them to stand fast in the face of adversity. I think they're particularly applicable to this situation. To these religious leaders, these are among the hardest words in all the Bible. Hebrews 6, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age of come to come if they fall away since they are crucifying once again the son of god to their own harm and holding him up to contempt we're talking about the people who are crucifying the son of god for the first time to their own harm and holding him up to contempt the writer of the hebrews says the worst thing that can happen to you is that you will be acting like these chief priests this retort they give, we have no king but Caesar, is a fateful utterance on the part of these official representatives of the Jewish theocracy. It re represents nothing less than the rending, the tearing apart of their sacred covenant with God. Nothing is more fundamental to that covenant than the kingship of God over the world in general, but in a special way over his chosen people. It was a conviction that no invading power could weaken or eradicate, whether it was the Babylonians, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, or even the Romans. Isaiah 26 says, Our Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. And secure in that conviction, they waited patiently through long centuries for the appearing of his Messiah to vindicate Israel's faith, to establish his rule visibly and powerfully over the whole world. 
And now in this terrible moment of apostasy, that sacred trust has been violated. A holy place is desecrated as centuries of faith and anticipation are just cast aside. We have no king but Caesar. The New Testament scholar George Beasley Murray says, it is nothing less than the abandonment of the messianic hope of Israel when the Messiah stands before them and they say, we take Caesar. You have to understand as we come to the cross that they haven't just turned against Jesus. They have torn up their covenant with God. And therefore, Jesus will die. The path is clear. The way has been set. The verdict is sealed. The trial is now over. And now, having been made, it's Pilate's decision. It's set. Verse 16, Pilate's decision. He delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Here's the final thing that this writer, the Apostle John, wants us to see as Jesus is condemned. We've seen him rejected. We've seen him fulfilling the purposes of God. And at last we see him handed over for crucifixion. Jesus will die. Barabbas will live. And it's often been asked, if you had met Barabbas the next day, the next week, the next month, if you'd met him in the streets of Jerusalem and you went up to him and asked him the question, how come you're alive, Barabbas? The only answer that he could give is that Jesus died in my place. It's the only answer he could give. Jesus died in my place. Do you see it? It's an acted out parable. John is telling us, he's asking us, do you hear the gospel here? This is the gospel. This is what it's all about. Jesus died in my place. Doesn't get better than this. Three times in John, the verdict is passed. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. It's like a ringing bell. How come then is he condemned? What are the charges? The charges that they have broken, that they have committed, they have accused Jesus of. Blasphemy for declaring himself to be the great I am, declaring himself to be the son of God, even though it was true. And they've charged him for treason. They're declaring himself to be a king over and above and against Caesar. And Pilate never gets out of the dilemma in the way he wants. In the end, he capitulates. But his anger with the Jews and Rome's anger with the Jews is not forgotten. You can almost picture Pilate standing there on the stone pavement, sitting in the judgment seat, coming down, facing the chief priests and the crowds of people with Jesus, this bloody mess, standing there. You can almost hear the gears turning in Pilate's mind. You can imagine him thinking, I want to triumph over the Jews in this whole stupid mess. But the emperor made his choice clear in the last purge of the Roman ranks. Friends of Caesar need have no other friends. If my choice is going to be between this man and Caesar, I take Caesar. I'm not going to lose my position or my head over someone who speaks riddles about kingship and truth. Look at Caiaphas. You can see him grin as the jaws of his trap spring around me. Someday, Caiaphas, you will pay. 
Rome is only going to tolerate your arrogance for so long and then our legions will sweep in and level Jerusalem. You will have wished you were more cooperative then. And if you know your history, it's exactly what happens. The Roman conqueror, Titus, leads the legions in, 70 AD, and they level Jerusalem and the streets flow with blood. In contrast to Pilate, who's stuck in this dilemma, who knows what he wants but can't do it. I think of this remarkable story, this remarkable message written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a brilliant Russian writer. He was unjustly confined in the Soviet Union's uh, notorious prison system for 11 years. He lived to tell about it in his amazing work, The Gulag Archipelago. If you've never read it, I encourage you to put it on your list of one of those things I have to read before I die. Although I warn you, it's not easy. He saw suffering such as few free people have ever seen. He saw the dehumanizing practice of the Soviet guards and the equally dehumanizing practices of some of the prisoners. He saw some break And he saw others grow strong. And he asks, quoting from his book, So what is the answer? How can you stand your ground when you are weak and sensitive to pain, when people you love are still alive, when you are unprepared? What do you need to make you stronger than the interrogator and the whole trap? Solzhenitsyn answers, From the moment you go to prison, you must put your cozy past firmly behind you. At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. A little early to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die now or a little later, but later on in truth it will be even harder, and so the sooner the better. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died, and for them, I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious to me. And he writes, confronted by such a prisoner, the interrogation will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can win that victory. And I read that. I said, could he have not been writing about Christ? Let me ask you something very hard, something very difficult. What's your instinct now, this very minute, right now, because it will say something about your heart? Is it your instinct to sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne, or is it your instinct to say, away with him, away with him, crucify him? And I ask that because my fear, both for you and for me, is that far too often, and in many different ways, large and small, perhaps even too small for us to fully comprehend, is that we aren't that different from the religious leaders, and that we aren't that different from Pontius Pilate. What became of Pontius Pilate? No one knows for sure. We know he finishes sort of his tour as the governor. 
returns to Rome and sort of disappears from history. The general opinion is he died much the same man he'd always been. But it's at least possible that it were not so. It is possible, surely it's possible, that if in my case, and if in your case, our judgment and rejection of Christ is overturned by the grace of God, and if we were made to see and confess that all Christ was unjustly condemned and crucified, his death was absolutely necessary as the only conceivable payment for my sins and for your sins, then surely it is possible that by God's grace, Pilate came to see and believe the same. Some of the priests who lusted for Christ's death that Friday later became his followers. We know that from the book of Acts. What a book could be written if only we had the information of the lives of those who had participated in the execution of the Prince of Life, but who later came to trust him for their salvation and to love him for overcoming their terrible sins against him. Would Pilate be in that book? No one knows. But Jesus prayed on the cross, Remember, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then when the Spirit came upon the church and the stupendous message of Christ's saving death and resurrection was spread throughout the world and people far and wide came to be followers of Christ, was Pilate among them? That he might have been. That it was certainly possible that even the sin that Pilate committed and that the Jews committed could be covered by Christ's death and forgiven by Christ's love It's the most important truth in all the world. It's the most important truth to know, to believe, and to live by. And that same sin and those same lies were in every Christian heart before the grace of God came and changed it. So why not to their hearts as well? Great sins, terrible evils, but a greater love and a more powerful grace in the Savior who could have saved himself but gave himself up to mockery, to torture, and to the cruelest death so that we might have life and have life forever. Think about that. Think about that. And be reminded, it is all of grace from beginning to end. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Heavenly Father, it is easy for us to look at Pilate, to look at the chief priests, and to see how bad they are, and not see how bad we are. And that it's only by the grace of God, the love of Christ, that we have been saved. Father, help us to see such a great salvation that can overcome all of our sins and all of our lies that you might call us to yourself. Help us understand as we leave here today that Christ is great, that salvation is great, and that we have been blessed beyond any measure of 
what we deserve or, or what we want or need. Father, I pray that you would continue to work that in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.